Let's get comfortable with death. Let's get comfortable with the process of dying. And let's get comfortable with being uncomfortable. Let's start by taking a peek into the mind and work of Dr. Amanda Stead. We're discussing the SLP role in end-of-life care this week on the Speech Uncensored podcast. I'm privileged to be your host. My name is Leanne Porter, and let's start off by learning a little bit more about Dr. Stead. All right. Hello, Amanda. How's it going? Going great. Good. All right. I'm so glad to have you on the podcast. I'm really interested in learning more about our role in end-of-life care. So before we get going into all that, um, tell me a little bit about yourself, what you do, what keeps you busy, and why you know and you're so passionate about this topic. Well, I am Dr. Amanda Stead. I am an associate professor at Pacific University, which is a small university just sort of west of Portland, Oregon. And my sort of specialty area, my focus is really across um, neurodegenerative disorders and dementia and end-of-life care. So I actually spend a great deal of time teaching about and thinking about these issues and um, even thinking about how we do the training. So right now I'm really doing some research on how we're going to train our professionals and others to know what we should be doing in this arena. I have been at the university for eight years, and before that, I was working at a private practice while I was concurrently doing my PhD at Louisiana State University, so that's sort of where I'm coming from. All right, excellent. Okay, so I have six questions to help us to get to know you a little bit better and our topic, so I'm going to start off with our who question. Who has been a mentor to you? You know, I have given a lot of thought to who my mentor has been. I, I would say early in my career or my education, I really didn't find a mentor that really resonated with me or I felt like was the right person. But when I entered my sort of early part of my career at Pacific, I met this just incredible sort of small set of humans um, professionally that have just completely changed my life. One of them is Mike Flayhive, who has been an incredible, just incredible scholar and really taught me the value of teaching through examples and talking about soft skills, which I really um, hold on to now. And the other person is Carol Dudding, who I think really helped me just understand how cool technology can be and that it's like not your enemy and that it is a powerful tool both for teaching and in rehab. So they have been consistent mentors to me for the last several years. I still like find them at ASHA and make sure I get FaceTime and a happy hour drink with both of them. Nice. Awesome. So what's your favorite time of year? My favorite time of year, I think, is definitely the very end of August, in, um, which for us in an academic cycle <clears throat> is the beginning of a new academic year. So I think it like brings with it the like promise of doing everything better again. So it's like you get a new opportunity to teach some of your content again. You get a new bunch of students who are so excited to see you. You get the opportunity to teach students you haven't seen in a while. So it feels like a time of like such renewal. So I love the very beginning of fall term as an academic. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. 
Um, where was the best in-person CEU that you've attended? I went to, um, well, I go to ASHA every year, but this past year, or not this past year, but 2019, wait, 2018, I attended a presentation at like eight in the morning on the very first day, which was way too early. And it had something in the title, but it said end of life. So I bookmarked it and thinking, wow, I'm really excited to see Asha cares about this topic and put this on here. And so I walked in and I remember I looked up at the podium and this woman was standing at the podium and I recognized her immediately as a palliative care doctor in a documentary that I show when I teach death and dying content. And I had like the biggest fangirl moment. Her name was Jessica Zitter. Um, she does this amazing documentary on Netflix called Extremis. I just cannot recommend it enough. And um, I like saw her and I fanned myself. And then I sat like in the third row and I sort of counted the minutes. And I finally just got the courage to walk up to her and tell her how wonderful I thought she was. And then I got to sit with her and talk with her for a really long time. And it, she's like signed my book. I mean, it was like, amazing and then she gave this incredibly powerful talk and joe puntel um was doing some of the moderation about what modern end-of-life care looks like and why we should be doing it better and it was just really inspiring and i think really spoke to i mean the reason i'm giving this talk today right so like what can we be doing better and why it's important yes awesome Ooh, that's exciting Ooh, i love it okay um, well, that kind of feeds really well into my next question. So why aren't SLPs involved in end-of-life care <laughs> on a more regular basis? You know, I've given a, <laughs> sorry, I'm getting over that wonderful uh, cold, I think, that's been circulating, but I have given a lot of thought to that, and I, I think there's sort of like aspirational us and then there's the real us, right? As a profession. Uh -huh. And I think part of the problem lies in both like no one really knows what we do in terms of like all the tertiary professions. And I think also we're not sure what we do sometimes. And I think that, and I see this really clearly now that I'm an educator, you know, we produce generations of students who really believe in some of the things we tell them in those initial settings really train them to the way things work. And if you don't hear it early and often, and if you go to clinical sites that don't say, yeah, we totally do this, look at how it's done, isn't this amazing? We sort of forget that we can do it. Mm -hmm. And I think the other reason we're not doing it or doing it, you know, often is that, you know, lots of people don't like it turns out to talk about dying. You know, people are really uncomfortable with the topic and I'm just such a huge advocate for the more you talk about it, the less uncomfortable it actually is. Yeah, and I think true. we're so personally uncomfortable because of our own death and dying experiences that to do that professionally feels like too much. And perhaps SLPs could be accused of being a sensitive bunch. So I, I think that's sort of where we're sitting. It's like, we're a little bit afraid of it and nobody knows what we do. So we're just not kind of in some of the pools we should be playing in right now to do this work. Mm. 
I really like how you mentioned how we're just uncomfortable with it because we don't talk about it enough, but the more we do, the more comfortable we can get. I mean, I've experienced that just in other areas of my practice. Like if I'm unsure or I don't have experience with a certain modality or treatment style, I shy away from it until I just suck it up, give it a shot. It's awkward at first. It's not pretty, but the more I do it and the more comfortable I get at it, the better I am. And then I can do it and then I don't have any problem with it. And I think we get caught in that loop of like a rehab only mindset. Like, yes. you know, and this is something I also struggle with in teaching dementia and working with dementia patients. It's like, but they're not getting better. Mm -hmm. well, okay, Right. So now that we've accepted that now, how do we do our work? And I think we're still moving not only ourselves, but you know, our referral sources and doctors and everyone else to that side too, that there is good work to be had without recovery. Mm -hmm. And that that's important human centered work. Yeah. And, you know, when you think about death and dying, it's like, this is a formative moment in a family's existence. Yes. If this isn't the right time to do the work, I really don't know when is. Mm. I really like that perspective. All right. So then my next question is, when did you start becoming involved in end-of-life care? Um, I, when I was a graduate student, and um, I always tell my students the story, you know, I was going to do something totally different. I think like everybody, when they go to graduate school, they're absolutely sure what they're going to do. Right. Like, oh, never mind. I hate that. Mm -hmm. But um, I think my grandmother, like, many other people became unwell and she was diagnosed with dementia and that was happening during my master's. And then as I went to my PhD and as I got into my PhD, I really, I think just saw how much my family was suffering. And I switched my focus and my PhD from more like aphasia centered work to more degenerative work and how we could do that work. And then when my grandmother entered what now looking back, I realized was her end of life sequence. My family did all of the things that we probably shouldn't have done. And when you have the conversations in the world, you know, what people want is that idea. And if you could see my fingers doing air quotes, but like the good death mm -hmm. and like, what does that look like? And in reflecting, I realized like, I'm not sure that's what my grandmother had. And I just became really focused on, wow, how did we do that? Like where, what steps did we miss? And then as you develop as a speech pathologist, you're like, oh, that was communication. Oh, that was decision-making. Oh, that was swallowing and feeding. And all of a sudden it's like, you have these epiphanies. It's like, that's where we're supposed to be. And I'm like, oh, well, I can do that. Like I have solutions for those things. And so I have worked really hard to think about how we can prevent families from experiencing what we experienced as a family. Because when you think about what people want, that's all that we sort of want at the end of a life is we want the good death. So, and it turns out there are things we can do that help that happen. That's good work. That's awesome. I really enjoy hearing people's stories um, about how they get into things because it's not that we just wake up one day or we read a paper and we're like, that's an interesting topic. You know, something has happened in our lives. We have a personal experience with it. And I think that's what makes us the best catalyst for action there. That's really cool. Um, all right. My last question, 
How can SLPs increase the value of services we offer to end-of-life patients? Well, I think it just goes back to knowing what your role is and knowing how to be like that idea of value added, you know, in a world where healthcare is still really consumer mm -hmm. and is big business. Okay. So where is your value added? And being able to say that in a wonderful way, I think the other thing, sometimes it's like, we want to like advocate and elbow in, but it doesn't work if people don't love us and appreciate us and we're not doing it in a way um, that makes people want to spend time with us. You know, I know that's a, a really weird way, but I think sometimes, you know, building a coalition mm. around is such an important construct in thinking about institutional change. And if, if we just say, well, I don't think like at the top is where this mandate's going to come from, but you know, each of our clinicians that works in like one setting can start to build that coalition and that sort of bottom up work within the setting. And that's, I, that for me is I think what creates real engagement. And mm -hmm. when other people see you doing good work, they're like, oh, how are you doing that? Well, you're having better outcomes than us, right? Like, let's do that. And so um, if you know what you do and you believe in it and it's powerful and you build a coalition, I know we can do the work, right? Mm -hmm. Nice. Okay. Well, let's transition over into the bulk of our topic and tell me more about the role of the SLP in end-of-life care. Um, we touched on this before during the, our Q&A session at the beginning. Um, like, do we have a therapeutic role, an educational role, a counseling role, um, just providing compensatory strategies? Like, how, how should we go about this? What, how should we frame it? All of it? None of it? Some of it? I just want to say yes to all the things you mentioned. But I mean, <laughs> so it's when, when I sort of think about, okay, what are our roles? I, I like to just break it down into sort of like four simple ways to think about it. I think the lowest hanging fruit and the one everybody sees in the quickest access point SLPs have, this is probably your quick way in is through feeding and swallowing, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we remain and tend to be the most comfortable in the arena of feeding and, um, and not just feeding in the sort of dysphagia sense, but like just the transit piece and pleasure feeding and thinking about the relationship between caloric intake and pain management, you know, all those sort of things that we're going to think about. But feeding for most SLPs like makes a ton of sense and they're like yes the patient isn't doing well but we want them to be able to eat what does that look like right mm -hmm. and I think um, the caveat to that is really thinking about so if we're not talking about rehab right because you have in fact at some level accepted the fact that your patient is not getting better then what what does your swallowing work and feeding work look like, right? And are we more comfortable with the risk-benefit analysis of not modifying diets and thinking about pleasure feeding and how we can like most safely eat that like horrific triple-decker cheeseburger that we know is not a good idea for them in terms of swallowing, but they like definitely need that. Like the quality of life aspects have to pick up times a thousand. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I just, you know, cannot go without saying is that when families are in crisis, 
like food is a frontline strategy. Mm. And so when people are hurting and they're in grieving and bereavement, you know, people want to feed people and people want to feed each other. And so we need to like be in that story. So it can be like, Hey, how, this is how this is a positive experience for you. And thinking about, you know, not making that feeding and eating dysphagia part disruptive and scary for families at the end of life. And also thinking about helping families understand when feeding um, is actually going to really hurt the patient because it can increase pain for some of our patients that are very near to the end of life. But, um, you know, food equals comfort. Mm-hmm. And you're the feeding person. Like, let's get up in there and do that work for sure. I think if you, say, okay, well, feeding is my entry, right? The next really easy sort of piece to think about is communication, obviously, right? So um, at the end of life, we know that communication can be really hard for patients. And not only can it be hard because maybe like whatever is, you know, helping them near the end of their life has impaired some of their communication, but also we know the management of pain and taking narcotic pain drugs makes it difficult to communicate and the way, um, you know, lots of disorders, degenerative conditions have lots of motor speech characteristics and weakness. Um, the other thing, it's not just communicating, um, to have conversation that like sort of quality of life piece, but it is of the, utmost importance that patients can participate in the decision making at the end of life. Mm. So when we think about communication, what people at the end of their life say that they want. So when you think about what do dying people want, they want to be able to tie up loose ends, communicate with family, have those sort of closing moments, goodbyes, rehash a life well lived. You know, they want to be able to do that. So they need to communicate. But also, people want to be able to make their decisions, and we need to support them in making those decisions. And not only for their autonomy, but because it relieves burden on a family system from having to really think about, wow, did I make that decision? you know, was that the right decision for my family, for the person I loved? And that is a great gift we can give to families of support and cognition and communication for both quality of life and decision-making. I think, you know, the third one I would really just highlight is that we have to think about communicating and developing strategies Mm -hmm. um, for the family and for the team. So when your pharmacist comes in and wants to adjust medication and talk about the ramifications of what that would look like, you know, does your family and your patient have a way of understanding and translating that information? And I think one thing that SLPs, I imagine part of the future of our profession is really proxy. Like, because we become such a translator of knowledge Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I really think that's value added. I think we're missing some opportunities, especially in medication management, mm-hmm. you know, because it turns out we communicate better than a lot of our <laughs> healthcare friends. I'm going to say it. I'll own that statement. I will um, back you up on it. <laughs> I, I, I know all the SLPs listening to this are like, yes, of course. Mm-hmm. But um, 
I think communicating with the family and the team and translating information and putting things into practice in terms of how this impacts that family's existence. Again, if you've already drank the Kool-Aid, that communication is the top of the pyramid in autonomy and quality of life, then really your business is everything that's happening. And I think that that's where you start the pitch. The, the last sort of piece in terms of our job is that sometimes in the like consultative model, you know, stepping in and just helping other team members on a hospice or palliative, palliative team, like really contextualize what a patient or family is experiencing and giving some consult, some recommendations if we're not going to engage directly. Um, of course, like conversely to do like full family caregiver training, which I would definitely advocate for. But if we can't always be the person in the room, I think we still should be a person in the conversation because if we're not even on the outside, we'll never be on the inside. So we have to start somewhere and maybe the consultative model is the right approach for you in your setting if you're not a part of these conversations already. So, Let's say an SLP is finding themselves moving in this direction. They're getting involved in a lot of end of life uh, care, pro like providing the care or being consulted on teams for this. What type of foundational knowledge, um, clinical info, medical info would be helpful? Like, what are they going to want to know? <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's, um, you know, I certainly wasn't. <laughs> trained in end-of-life care if my master's, right? Or my mm -hmm. PhD for that matter. So you certainly have to like go out and do some of the work yourself. Um, I was lucky to go out and take a certificate course in end-of-life care and then just be sort of a voracious reader of all of the things, right? So mm -hmm. and spend a lot of times uh, with people in hospice. So I think you sort of like also learn that way. If you are new to this area and you and you want to learn. Um, there have been some wonderful scholars in our field that have written about work. You know, the uh, topics in language disorders did a special issue um, several years ago on end of life care for the SLP. ASHA's scope of practice is very clear about where and how we engage. Um, and there has, are some wonderful sort of ethics textbooks about it. But if that's like sort of like not your thing, I think. One of the places I would start is that first, you have to clear up your understanding of the vocabulary because there is such a fundamental misunderstanding about words like hospice and palliative care and autonomy and advanced directive and proxy and you know comfort care. Like people have a version of these words defined often based on personal experience. Mm -hmm. And that's not bad, but it's just, of course, part of the story of what you need to do professionally. And the other work I just, you really, it's the right way to say this. I am a strong advocate for sort of putting your own baggage on the table. So when you're talking about end of life care, I have yet to really meet a person who hasn't you know, experienced one of these moments. And when you talk about it, doesn't view that conversation through the lens of their own personal experience. So I think as you're thinking about, well, what does hospice look like? And you feel your personal narrative come into that story that you say, ah, there it is. 
no, that was my family's experience. That's not like what hospice is meant to be, or that's not what palliative care completely represents, or that's not like what chaplains always do, you know? And I think really giving yourself the permission to sort of compartmentalize and evaluate your own lived experience to make sure it's not messing with your professional job, which is because it's such an emotionally loaded experience, it's, you're just at high risk for it because it turns out you're a person, right? Shocker. <laughs> right? I mean, yeah. you're just like a person. And, you know, if you want to figure out, you know, you know AAC, you know, you know language, you know cognition, you know swallowing, like those are your trades. What you don't know is maybe the vocabulary or the language everyone else is talking to you. And the other thing that maybe you don't know, but I'm sure you know better than you think, are like the pieces of counseling and just how you are entering into really emotionally loaded spaces. And, you know, SLPs, like we're in them all the time, but maybe we can all admit that our range of comfort in those spaces are different and our range of skill in those conversations is also different. So I think really going back and revisiting what good counseling looks like so that you can deliver information and then provide good care in those spaces. Yeah, that's really, really spot on. My hospital did uh, like a seminar over lunchtime one month on discussing the differences between hospice and palliative and how some people have a tendency to use them interchangeably. And they're two very different programs or establishments or however you want to kind of make the umbrella term for them. So I really like that you pointed that out, that you really need to know the terminology that people are using around these. And I love that you pointed out, recognizing that you're bringing a lot of your own personal experience to that and then to separate the two. That's well, pretty I yeah, well, and I think, you know, to bring up your point about hospice and palliative, I have said the word hospice to people and you see them bristle in their body because for a lot of people, like hospice is a dirty word. Hospice mm -hmm. means you gave up. Hospice means you're letting their person die. And to pretend like that's not what people hear you say is, is really lying about what that word means in society. And so what I would just encourage you to do is if you say, you know, well, while we're in hospice and you see that shift, I, you know, lean into that discomfort because the good work is always in the uncomfortable spaces and just said, you know, when I say the word hospice, what does that mean to you? And give them the opportunity to articulate the burden that that word is carrying for them so you can really understand where they're coming from instead of them being like well you're gonna let my person die oh no that's not what we do that's not what hospice does like it's so dismissive and invalidating and again like this is a formative moment like people are in the weeds like accept that and be with them down there and the outcomes will always be better yes a hundred times. Yes. Yeah. All the, exactly what you said. I feel like I just need to take, like, pull that out and just put that on repeat, like over and over and over again. There's so much about what you just said that is hugely important. I really like that piece about like just listening to their talk and not immediately go on the defensive and be like, no, you're wrong. It's not that. No, just listen to them. Listen to their fears. Listen to their worries. Like that's huge. Whenever I do that, like that's like almost the immediate way to build a rapport 
because you're the only one who has taken the time to sit there and to let them talk and to listen to them and to hear them. And then if you're smart enough to validate them, oh my gosh, then they're like, this is a whole new experience in the medical field for me. Like <laughs> so few people are doing that in healthcare. Well, and it's not about you. Like mm -hmm. we as healthcare providers, I think we take questions and some people can get really defensive and they feel challenged. Like if someone doesn't like what you said, they're like, oh, watch me pull out all my rationales. Instead of just being like, wow, this has nothing to do with me. Like these people are not in their best moment right now. Of course they're not. You know, I always, I teach my students like, you know, you're not meeting people at like sunshine and rainbows. Like you're meeting people during very challenging times in their life and why they should be like so compliant to you is fascinating. Like you're there to serve them, not the other way around. You know, in fact, they're paying a tremendous amount of money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so like, you know, do the best you can. And the, sort of the least we can do is listen to them and understand their perspective and understand that their perspective, one, has nothing to do with you. Two, like your personal opinion is not particularly relevant. And, you know, your scope of practice has got to like rise above that and just stay grounded in the work instead of like getting down in the weeds and losing your mind alongside of a family that really needs you. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Let's keep moving forward because yeah, this, this talk right here that we're having could be its own like two hour special. <laughs> so yeah. important relating to people. It's a big deal in a field where you are working with people constantly. <laughs> All right. Um, are there um, typical settings where end-of-life care, where we would be involved, typical diagnoses, um, or is it very, very um, heterogeneous? Like, what are we looking at here? Well, you know, um, I, you know, in thinking about this question, I wrote human. I, you know, if, if, if you're a human, then you're going to encounter end-of-life care as an individual. And then any spaces in which you encounter humans, and I, I think we like to we like to think about end of life care. Um, it's the most palatable in thinking about geriatrics, right? And thinking about degenerative terminal conditions, and we're sort of like, oh, like I can, I can talk about the ninety eight year old with dementia and talk about that hospice story, but we don't like to talk about our thirty year old with cancer. Mm. We don't like to talk about the three year old, mm -hmm. you know, and that's where people get a little funny and that's where bias sneaks in. So I would say if you're working with people, there's a chance you might run into end of life care. And I certainly was shocked as a professional, you know, as a new student, the CF, you're like, Oh my gosh, no one prepared me for this. You know, like I didn't realize how many of my patients were not going to quote unquote get better. Mm -hmm. And not only like how many of them would die, you know, the first time you lose a patient, I think it's, it can be really earth shattering if no one has talked to you about that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, certainly if you're working with patients who have a degenerative condition, this is part of the story. When you're working with your cat cancer patients, this is part of the story. You know, our children with complex diagnoses, injuries, brain injuries, syndromic conditions, you know, all of these. But, um, you know, weird things happen to people, and I think it shows up anywhere. Obviously, your hospital, your home health, and just your hospice palliative teams are going to be the most frequent intersection that you have with this work directly. So if you work in a medical setting, I would say this is fundamental knowledge. 
but to work in a middle school and not have this knowledge, I, I think is also a mistake. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for opening it up to literally everybody with their SLP license. <laughs> I was going to try to narrow it down because that's how I like know things and learn things is by putting them in pretty little boxes. And like, if I, if I can anticipate something then I can be ready for it, but it's like, if you practice, you should be prepared for this because end of life occurs across the spectrum. We think it's going to be more likely with certain ages and certain diagnoses, but it's all over the place, all around us. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're stepping into that space now and we want to have these conversations with patients and caregivers. And like, just thinking about that, like I'm getting scared. Like the fear is rising up in me because I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to make it worse. I don't want to say something thoughtless. Like, do you have any, I don't know, recommendations, like just, I don't know, embrace the fear and plow on or learn from your mistakes as you make them. Like, well, yeah, I, you know, I think that that's really hard. And what I will say is that as a person who has had a lot of these conversations, you know, I don't always get it right either. But I, I think that you need to practice and have courage and also like understanding. So one, you can't have the conversation if you don't know what you're talking about. So just being really spooled up on what your goals are, where you're going, you know, you just have to know your work. I think the second one is that you have to really go down to the fundamentals of counseling. So the first thing out of your mouth has to be a validation, not a hollow one, a real one. And, you know, there's great evidence out there that says, you know, that therapeutic alliance changes outcomes and people know when you're not being authentic. And when you're talking about their person who's not getting better, it better be just like coming from the deepest part of you who understands the weight of your words. So in that moment, given like our schedules and our productivity and like all this insanity, you know, if you need to pause for two minutes outside of that door before you go in and really have a moment to ground yourself and remind yourself about why it's important, slow down. No one wants to feel like you're rushing through telling them something horrible. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, the way you carry yourself, the words that come out of your mouth, it turns out language is really going to matter here. So the first thing you're going to do is validate. When they, when they say something to you, one of the best strategies I always teach in counseling is reflection. So if someone says, you know, I'm really concerned that if we accept this, uh, you know, hospice benefit that you're going to let my father die. So they say that to you. And instead of being like, oh, no, 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 no. And like panicking, you just say, so you're afraid that we're going to let him die and just reflect the same thing back that they just said to you. So you've offered no new information mm. and you haven't sort of muddied the pit. You've just literally like parroted their words back to them. And what that really does, it's a powerful counseling tool that helps someone reconsider the own words they just said to you and actually often refine. So if you say, you think we're going to let him die and they'll say, yeah, like you're not going to try to cure him. And that's when you're like, well, one of the things about hospice is, is that we're not going to be pursuing curative treatments. 
however we are. And that's when you give information. You know, you can't front load those information dumps because not everybody needs all your info. You know, it took you years to gather that info, calm down, like you'll get there. But I think start with validation, then move to reflection until you have the opportunity to give the information that is necessary in that moment. The other thing that I always just really strongly advocate for is that, I hope this doesn't come off too harsh actually, is that, you know, lying by omission is still lying. Mm, no, and, preach that. I'm like so strong in that camp. Like, ooh, it's almost a pet peeve. No, it is a pet peeve. I shouldn't split hairs. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. I, I think that you are denying someone the their right to autonomy and healthcare decision making if you know something that you're not telling them because you know maybe it's not your place or you're uncomfortable or you're scared or someone is like being really emotive you know being kind is not about not telling people the truth Mm -hmm. And the thing is, is your therapeutic alliance and you maintaining a good relationship and being kind to families is not about making them happy. It's about being honest and supportive given the context that we find them in. And the more you practice the courage and calmness to deliver really wounding information and you accept the burden of that, that you know that you're wounding them, but that it's also your job mm -hmm. to provide that information so that they can be fully informed for the next part of their journey. And if you do it with true love and caring, they hear you differently. And you know, you hear from families who it's like, they'll tell you, it's like everybody knew and nobody told us. And as a dementia person, you know, I have a lot of really complicated conversations with families. And sometimes I'm just shocked at how little they've been told. And it makes me so angry. Like, you spineless monsters who can't <laughs> just tell them. Mm -hmm. Like, it's cruel. And it's really denying them the opportunity to be a fully informed participant in their own care. So, you know, you counsel. You do it authentically, but that you recognize that your job is to tell them what you know, mm -hmm. and that, that in fact is delivering quality care. Yeah, I'm a huge proponent of equipping people um, with that information for them to make informed health decisions. When you have all the pieces of the puzzle, you can see the picture clearly and make a decision that reflects your values as, as the patient or as the caregiver involved in the patient's care. So that's like our job to help equip them. I'm really passionate about health literacy and like providing that. So big proponent. And so that's good to hear that that's a big area in end of life care. Cause I feel that knowledge is power and you're, you're giving them the power to make those decisions when you provide informative education. I, I really, I think that it's really a denial of their personal autonomy not to do so. Mm -hmm. I actually feel like it's a violation of the sort of like oath that we take as a healthcare provider. And, I, you know, I tell my students and I was like, that makes you a liar. And that might sound really harsh and horrible, but that's what it is. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't 
not tell them something that you know that could change the decisions they make, those are not your decisions. And the moment is just too important to let your own weird, like personal comfort issues or bias sneak into it. Like you have full permission, like get your business out of there, do the job really well. It's too important to not tell them the truth. Absolutely. Okay. Um, I want to jump down to make sure that we tackle this pretty important section. Um, so let's go to identifying goals of care for the dying patient. I am so glad that we're talking about this because one of the things I think is really important is that um, if you want to move away from the rehab model, it's like, again, they're not getting better, remember? So like, what are their goals? So if we know we're aligning our work with their goals, like what do dying people really say that they want? And the first thing you're going to hear, you know, is like people want relief from pain. Of course they do. And what relationship do we have with that pain management and that sort of like peace in terms of helping them communicate, understand the ramifications of that and the future decision making. I think the other thing is what people tell you is that most people switch from the sort of quantity to quality mm-hmm. of life issues. So they're really interested in maximizing the quality of life they have so they can review a life that they have lived that review um, and search for meaning is a really important part of recognizing that someone is dying people want to you know for lack of a better term like tie up loose ends so Mm -hmm. they want to communicate with people and they want to try to um have closing conversations and goodbyes The other thing that um, when you think about things like the dying patient's bill of rights, you know, people do not want to be deceived. Mm -hmm. They do not want to be lied to. They want to participate in their care. Um, They want to not die alone and they want to die free of pain and peacefully. So thinking about how we participate in that. And I think if you say, okay, so my patient wants to communicate with people and have a high quality of life. Turns out that that's literally your entire scope of practice, like communication, cognitive swallowing, great. So we should see everybody. <laughs> and then we think about the other piece that um, is so prominent in end of life literature. I love to teach about this part, um, probably because it makes people a little bit uncomfortable and that's kind of fun as an instructor, but thinking about the relationship between dying and spirituality because the second you talk about either sex or spirituality, like everybody is a professional, like bristles a little bit. And they're like, oh, no, no, that's not in my scope of practice. Maybe a little weird, you know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, faith is a really important aspect for a lot of people, particularly at the end of life. Mm. And now, if you just close your eyes and pretend like that's not happening because like spirituality doesn't happen in healthcare, then you are really missing an opportunity to understand your patients. And um, when you think about how you're going to handle questions about that, conversations about that, and welcome spaces for that, I think that healthcare providers have a long way to go in just not 
freaking out when people talk about things um, related to their own spiritual practice. Because again, we bring our own weird personal feelings into the room. Instead of just hearing your patients say, this is something really important to me to talk about right now and I'm processing and this is an important moment for me and this is one of my values. You know, if someone said one of my values is gardening and I really love roses, like you wouldn't, you wouldn't even blink. But if someone says, you know, one of my values is my faith and because of my faith, this is what I want to happen. Everybody gets really weird all of a sudden. And so when we talk about end of life care, just like one, you have to get comfortable with the conversation. Two, you have to just figure out how you're going to sit in spaces where people are talking about some of the things that might make you like extra uncomfortable. So we find SLPs uncomfortable talking about dying. And then your patient is talking about their spiritual beliefs. And, you know, you have personal feelings about that. And it's like the perfect collision for so many of our practitioners. And um, it's a really big mistake because at the end of life, spirituality is one of the most prevalent components entering into those spaces. And if you don't honor it, you will break your therapeutic alliance with your patients. And it's not about you, mm -hmm. you know? Do you have any recommendations for people who... Um, maybe they don't align with that faith or they're not familiar with it, or they just, they don't know how to respond in that space. Like how can they respect the patient and, and be SLPs? Like I definitely have some recommendations. And the thing is, is like my own personal proclivities, one are not relevant. So I think the first thing you have to tell yourself is like, you know, whatever I think about your spiritual beliefs is not relevant in this space because it's not part of my scope of practice, right? So I don't provide you care based on our, my spiritual beliefs. And I think what people are worried about is people are worried about either like they're going to inflict their own personal spiritual beliefs onto their patients or vice versa. Mm. You know, the patient is like, well, you know, I believe in this. We're, you know, some people are like, whoa, whoa, you know, don't preach to me. About, and I'm like, that's not the space you're in. But, you know, we understand that. So, you know, when someone says like, why did God do this to me? Hmm. Which is a thing you can hear in hospice care. And like when people are dying or when someone says, you know, it would feel like murder to turn off this ventilator. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Those are the same conversations that you're having. And so what do you, what do you do with that? Well, you put on your counseling hat and you go to your Zen space, right? And you look at them with compassion and you just say, this sounds really important to you. What I hear you saying is that you're not ready to make this decision. This doesn't feel like the right decision for your family. What I hear you saying is you're really struggling with why this is happening to you. I hear you saying, this is a really hard thing to process. I'm so sorry. I'm here for you to do this work, to make sure that you feel good about what's gonna happen next to the best that we can make that happen. And that's all you can do. And if someone is in those spaces where they're processing 
and they're talking about things like God and murder and their faith is like dictating some of their decisions. It's their decision. And the best thing you can do is just affirm that you respect the importance of those values. And if you would just soften your body and affirm them, that energy in the room will come down so far and then you'd really be able to help them move through to a place so you can get them to what decision are we making next or how am I communicating this? Or maybe they're venting. What a human thing to do. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, have you ever said something you didn't mean when you were frustrated? Like, come on. Like, it's, it's just such a human moment. And this is when you call in our chaplain friend. Mm. And this is when you call in counseling support and just say, I hear you. This is unfair. And that's it. You just sort of start there. Okay. I'm definitely going to have to listen to this episode like 25 times to like get this down. <laughs> like, this is such good teaching. I love it. Okay. Um, real quick, let's talk about some key professionals involved in end of life care. Um, there are so many and it can be kind of setting specific because depending on if you're on like a legit hospice or palliative team, or you're just like in home health or, you know, you're in even like a school district. I mean, it really depends on sort of your, I think, primary setting. But when we think about, okay, so like who's really around, like the first one is the physician. If that's a primary physician, like an oncologist for a cancer or degenerative specialist, or just like your regular like PA or primary, depending on sort of what's happening. And then when we think about like, who's going to come after that? So it's physician and nurses because they're providing the frontline sort of medical care. Thinking about often if you've entered formal hospice or palliative, there's often a care coordinator or a hospice coordinator or social worker who's like kind of like the overlord coordinating everybody together. Um, Often, if you are in formal hospice or palliative care, a chaplain is really upfront, and you know there are the professional, like highly trained professional, that addresses the spiritual aspect. And again, like going back to the previous conversation, like palliative care as a medical profession has recognized that spirituality is so important that a chaplain is on the team. Mm-hmm. So. That- there again is like your permission to just like recognize that it's value and presence in that space. The other people that are going to come sort of after that sort of frontline team are going to be all your rehab people. So us, PT, OT is needed, psychologist. The other people are often the pharmacist and nutritionist. Mm-hmm. And sometimes, um, and we're getting so much better at this is thinking about alternative care providers, like massage therapists and acupuncturists, especially for pain management. So a lot of this is dictated, of course, by your payer, surprise. Um, But those are sort of the best people and sort of diagnostic specific. You know, frontline are your doctors and nurses and your care coordinators, and then we get pulled on as needed. I would advocate we should be on most, you know, at least consultative, teams because at the end of life feeding and communication 
are part of the story of what's changing. And if you know that those are the dying patient's bill of rights, those are really important, then we should be you know, consulted on many, many, many of these cases. Amanda, this was highly informative, really incredible. Like you hit so many different areas and I feel like I have a much wider understanding and yet you've opened up so many more horizons that it's like, ah, oh, man, <laughs> there's clearly so much more I need to learn and experience here. Um, so we'll be gathering some of those um, resources that you mentioned during our talk to put into the show notes. And um, gosh, like this is so meaty. Like I'm going to have to sit with this for a while and like let it simmer because I feel like it is. Whenever there's much more emotion, like it kind of stunts the rest of me a bit and it takes me a lot longer to process things. And uh, yeah, these topics like can really hit hard. And so, I mean, that just helps me know what the people are going through that I'm trying to work with. And so, okay. Well, Amanda, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. I know. I feel like I could talk for hours and hours and there are just so many good media and books and wonderful things to read to really just I think give yourself some like further sort of work in this area especially understanding the patient experience mm -hmm. awesome all right well thank you so much thank you so much for having me I so thoroughly enjoyed recording this episode, which seems like a strange thing to say about a conversation that centers around death and dying. So let me explain by using Amanda's words. The good work is always in the uncomfortable spaces. I think each of us strive to have a positive impact on the life of our patients. And to do that, we often get stretched outside of our comfort zones. But that's where the learning happens and that's where the growth occurs. That's where the good work is achieved. So again, a big thank you to the amazing Dr. Amanda Stead for illuminating the value we can offer to end-of-life care. I encourage you to visit the show notes on speechuncensored.com. I've linked to the documentaries, books, and other insightful resources Amanda mentioned. Up next on the Speech Uncensored podcast is Lisa Treviso-Jones, who is sharing about her work on the burn unit. You heard right, we have a role to play in burn units, and Lisa is going to guide us through a typical day. Thanks for subscribing and reviewing the podcast. Now I'd like to say hi to listeners in Cape Town, South Africa, Selbridge, Ireland, and Independence, Missouri. Please continue to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. <laughs>